We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Born into the world of entertainment through his father Leslie and Uncle Lou running what was then regarded as the biggest talent agency in Britain, which eventually resulted in the birth of independent television, theatrical agent turned TV executive Lord Michael Grade enjoyed a gradual rise through the entertainment ranks. Beginning his career as a sports reporter for the Daily Mirror in 1960, the young Michael was thrust into the management side of showbiz just six years later when he replaced his father in the family business following a debilitating stroke. Here he learned the workings of the business under the supervision of the legendary Billy Marsh, which was an invaluable experience until 1973 when he became head of light entertainment at LWT. In 1981... Grade left LWT to begin a two-year period as the president of Embassy Television in the United States before returning to take up the post of controller of BBC One. In 1988, he swapped sides again and began a long association with Channel 4, but in 2004 was lured back to the corporation following the controversial Hutton inquiry. I caught up with the legendary TV mogul to talk heroes, light entertainment and his recollections on an unprecedented career in show business. Ladies and gentlemen... Lord Grade. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, am I right in thinking that you started your career as a sports reporter for the Daily Mirror? Um, try and give us a sense of what it was like working in the world of Fleet Street at such a culturally defining period for Britain. Well, I was very lucky. I left school at 17. I didn't want to go to university. And my dad had uh, one of my dad's big shareholders was the Daily Mirror. And he managed to wangle me a job because he knew my passion for watching sport, not participating, but watching. Mm. I got a job uh, as a trainee sports journalist at the Mirror, which at the time was selling five and a quarter million copies every day. There was no sun. The sun wasn't launched yet by Murdoch. Um, Fleet Street was a fantastic place. It was a village. Um, all the sports departments of all the big newspapers used to go around lunchtime to each other's pubs. You know, one day it was the Mirror Pub and the Express and the Mail and all the other papers would come to us. Then we go to the Express Pub and then the Daily Mail Pub and so on and so on. And there was a lot of drinking. That's where I learned to drink more than anything. <laughs> and uh, I learned how newspapers work, which stood me in very good stead later. And it taught me how to write in a sort of journalistic style, which has come in handy over the years yeah. but uh it was an amazing time uh and the mirror was an inspired newspaper at the time very, it was fun and frothy but it had a, a lot of very serious content in it and some wonderful columnists so it was a very happy time for me and i did six years before my and i had my own column by the end of that and and then uh, my dad was very sick so i had to i had to had to give up being paid to watch football <laughs> and go and earn a living, proper living. So, business. what sort of uh, what sort of figures were around at that time to give people an idea of the era? 
Well, I mean, it was an era of uh, the rise of Muhammad Ali, uh, Henry Cooper, the great British boxer, uh, England World Cup winning 1966, uh, Alf Ramsey, the England manager, who was a fantastic guy. Uh, and in the sports world, yeah, uh, it was the era, just the end of the era of Dennis Compton, the great great English cricketer, but Peter May, Colin Cowdery, Freddie Truman, the great Yorkshire fast bowler who was quite a character. Uh, and, uh, you know, one got to, got to meet all these heroes. Really. Lovely. So looking back now, how important was your experience as a journalist to your attitude towards talent, which then encompassed the rest of your career? Um. Not really. I left the newspaper because my dad was. I had to go into the family business, and I trained to be a talent agent, and that's where I learned uh, to spot talent. And I was apprentice to a genius agent called Billy Master, God bless him, who discovered not just managed but discovered Morecambe and Wise, Bruce Forsyth, Harry Worth, yeah. Frankie Vaughan. Uh, Charlie Drake, uh, Norman Wisdom, Quite. many, many more. And he was a genius. And he taught me what to look for. And he honed my instincts, let's put it that way. And we shared an office and between us, we probably smoked 120 cigarettes <laughs> in the office. Untipped players. Yeah. Um, so... You joined the family business, as you mentioned, uh, quite a difficult time uh, with your father not being well. What were your thoughts on your position in the grade organisation at the beginning? Um, well, I could have joined when I left school, but I decided I didn't want to go do the obvious thing. But when I eventually went in in 1966, 67, I uh, uh, I was needed, as it were. So it 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 it, it made me realise actually I had to get serious. I uh, got married in sixty seven, sixty eight. Uh, so uh, I, I had no problems working in the family business. No. And very very quickly, all kinds of things happened. It ended up with me and two partners, not members of the family, Billy Marsh and another man called Dennis Fantel. And we eventually, through a set of circumstances, ended up running our own talent agency. Hmm. So you mentioned uh, the legendary Billy Marsh there. How important do you think he was to the direction of your career? Oh, he taught me everything about talent how to look for talent, how to manage talent, how to understand talent. Because talent, the talent that performs, whether it's you're a comedian or a straight actor or whatever you are, it's a terribly insecure life. Right. Uh, and you have, to, you, you have to pay attention to that insecurity and understand it and not get frustrated when they behave badly, which a lot of them do at some point or another. But that's really their insecurity that's growing. And Billy was a brilliant psychologist. Yeah. And he knew he knew he knew that if they were being the artist was being difficult, there was something else going on that was worrying them. And 
he would get to the bottom of it. So, sort of famously, I suppose, in 1968, uh, Billy Marsh was on holiday and you were taken out to lunch by your old friend Bill Cotton, who was interested in Morecambe and Wise. In hindsight, how important was that lunch to the direction of light entertainment in Britain? Um, well, although Bill Cotton paid for the lunch, I, I, it was I who invited him. Morecambe and Wise were very big on ITV for my Uncle Lou, who was one of the founders of ITV. And we reached an impasse in the negotiations with Lou to renew the contract. Lou was very being very difficult about the money. So I, I talked to Billy, and Billy said, well, ring Bill Cotton and see see what progress you can make there. So I rang Bill, and we had this famous lunch where he accused me of just using him to get Lou to up his price, but he said, I'll go along with it for the ride. And to his astonishment, uh, he signed Morecambe and Wise. Uh, I don't think it particularly changed light entertainment. What it did was give Morecambe and Wise a whole new lease of life because their writers, they split from their writers who'd been very successful for them at ATV. And Bill Cotton came up with the idea of teaming them with Eddie Braben, who was Ken Dodd's writer and had had a row with Ken Dodd. And and Eddie Braben took Eric and Ernie to a new level. And, of course, the BBC, the place to be was on, on Christmas Day on the BBC, on BBC One. And that's huge for Eric and Ernie. Mm. Um, so we were lucky enough to speak with historian Graham McCann. Um, he stated, uh, quote, um, I think that Michael Grade saw Bill Cotton as a very trusting and reliable advisor and mentor to some extent. It was almost like an older and younger brother relationship. How would you describe your relationship with Bill Cotton? And what positive effect do you think that your working relationship had on the TV output at BBC during Cotton's tenure? Well, we go back, Bill and I went back 100 years. I mean, his dad, Billy Cotton, the band leader, Billy, Billy Cotton's band, their agent was my dad and my Uncle Lou, Lou and Leslie Gray. So they were, we were almost a family together. Uh, and uh, Bill, old Bill, as I always called him, uh, had been very helpful to the family during the war. And my dad was uh, away in the RAF, uh, been very helpful. We were very close. And Bill and I had always been friends. And when I was an agent, I was always trying to flog him ideas and artists. And then eventually asked me to come and work at the BBC. They were in a mess. Uh, and he... I was working in Los Angeles in Hollywood in television. And he said, why don't you come back come back and, 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 and help me sort out BBC One? And I took the biggest pay cut in history. Uh, but I knew I'd be in good hands with Bill and we would have a, a very strong, we'd be a very strong combination mm. of storing the fortunes of, of BBC television. And that's exactly what happened. Josh just asked, how did you like going up against him when you were at LWT? 
good question. Um, it was fun. You know, it was business. And our friendship was tested on a number of occasions. Uh, <laughs> but we always remained friends, even though we were competitors. Uh, and I had massive respect for massive respect for him. And I think because he had an eye for talent, he's, he could see that I, he could see something in me, which uh, later became a partnership, him and me at the BBC. Uh, but we were very close, despite the competitive tensions. <laughs> so, <laughs> mentioning LWT there, uh, it, 1973, I believe you were unveiled as head of light entertainment. In what ways do you think your grounding sort of with Billy Marsh and learning those man management tools, how do you think that sort of enabled you to lead what had been quite a problematic network at that time, specifically thinking about sort of Michael Peacock and the colour strike and things like that? Well, there was... Uh, London Weekend had gone through uh, a roller coaster ride and John Freeman was brought in as chairman to restore, to get it stable. Sir Bennett was brought in, the late Sir Bennett was brought in as uh, director of programmes. Uh, and they were beginning to rebuild London Weekend. And I was still an agent, but I had some good ideas. I, I, I managed, looked after a number of directors and producers and writers, TV people. And between us, we started coming up with ideas, which we... I used to go to Cyril and I sold him quite a few ideas. And one day he said to me, why don't you save yourself the taxi fare and come and be my head of life entertainment? And that changed you know, my career dramatically. Uh, but it, everything I'd learned from Billy was about spotting and managing talent. What I had to learn, and it took me about two years at London Weekend, was to understand the difference between television and the theatre because most of my work had been in the variety theatre. Uh, and big reviews at the Palladium and so on uh, and television, the critical faculties that you need in television are very different to those that you need in the theatre. What I did have as a gift from those days was when you used to put on big shows, variety shows with all of acts, the key thing was the running order. You know, what act went first, who went second, who went third, da, 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 da. and Billy and I were brilliant. We just thought alike. I mean, he taught me, but I, I knew instinctively what the right running order was. And I'm sure that was the grounding that I needed in order to create a schedule. What show goes at 7 o'clock? What show goes at 8 o'clock? 9 o'clock? And so that discipline of doing running orders, I just... I just had an instinct for what show should go on what night and, and at what time. And, and you know, scheduling is an art uh, and it's instinctive. And it's no good if you haven't got the shows to put on, you haven't picked the right shows to put on. But nevertheless, that scheduling instinct was uh, was learnt in the variety theatre. And I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Hmm. Excuse me, I'll have a cup of coffee. No, that's fine. You enjoy it. Um, so... Josh just wants to ask a quick question about something that maybe didn't go so well. Um, at LWT, you were responsible for Bruce's big night. Why yeah. do you think that failed to hit a chord with the audience? Well, actually, it did. But the press were beastly. 
Um, they saw it as a David and Goliath that I'd nicked Bruce from from the Generation Game, which is the nation's favourite TV show. And Larry Grayson, sort of the up-and-comer, had gone in as a replacement. And uh, Bruce's big night and the Generation Game were head-to-head in the ratings. And uh, the press saw this as David and Goliath, Bruce being Goliath. And uh, it was... It was a horrible time because the show was actually quite good and a lot came out of it. Um, and, but the, 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 the press loved it. They built it up into a, into a David and Goliath. And in the end, after a year, Bruce and I looked at each other and said, no matter how good the show, we're never going to win this. Because, you know, the public had been told by the press, the tabloid press, and their millions, it sold millions in those days, not to watch the show because it was rubbish. But it wasn't rubbish at all. It was a new format. Anyway, out of it came uh, Play Your Cards Right, so, uh, which became oh, a huge... Yeah. Uh, hey, hi. 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 Josh said he's actually, he saw this, he's seen the show and he thought it was very good. Look, Thank you. Know. you. <laughs> Not one view. Yeah. Not one view. <laughs> what, that, what that means. <laughs> so well done. Probably a highlight there. Josh has said Bruce, Bruce and I remained very close friends right to the end. Oh, lovely. I was very proud of. I adored him. So you mentioned a little bit about your time in America. Um, in today's TV culture, it seems quite ordinary for people, both behind and in front of the camera, to f- sort of flip between the UK and US. Um, but you took up a role, was it as the M- president of the embassy? Embassy, television? yeah. yeah. Um, what did that teach you about the differences between British and American entertainment? Well, at that time, the time I went to Hollywood, uh, there was a huge difference difference in that there was no competition for revenue in the UK. The BBC had the licence fee. ITV had uh, had a monopoly of advertising revenue, even when Channel 4 was started. So it was not competitive. When you go to America, it was cutthroat uh, competition. Uh, very, very competitive. Very, very, very good. A world of difference. And it, it was very... Looking back, uh, it was hard not to make money in ITV because the money just rolled in because there was nowhere else for it to be spent. Well, you had to do good programs and all the rest of it, uh, but it's nothing like Hollywood where you know every rating point was was you know you, you lived off you lived or died by the ratings, and uh, that was not the case. It is the case today in British commercial TV that. The competition is now more like America, but that was the that was the big difference. Hmm. Okay, um, so how important was um, Television Centre to BBC's output during that period? It's just the building. Um, people get sentimental about buildings. Uh, it was just an efficient set of studios and some very wonderful talent went through there. Uh, but 
you know, the shows could have been done anywhere, really, in the proper studios. But there was that concentration of studios in that iconic building. But people get very misty-eyed about it. And in fact, I did a, I hosted a two-hour prime time farewell to the television centre uh, for the BBC some years ago. Um, I don't feel nostalgic about it. It was just a good time. Uh, it had to be where a lot of great shows got made and it's got happy memories. Uh, but, you know, those shows, you know, Morecambe and Wyatt's could have made their shows in any studio, really. Yeah. From your point of view, do you think that's that's the key there is that for you obviously had that time where you were managing the talent. Do you feel like it opened your eyes a little bit to, you know, those people could... They're so talented, they could do it anywhere. It was... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the building is irrelevant, really, to be honest. Hmm. I mean, you know, people get a bit misty-eyed about Television Centre, but that's nice. It it, it has a very uh, iconic historical place in the history of British television. It it wasn't... It it didn't contribute anything to the quality of the shows. You know, you could still make bad shows in the Television (laughs) Centre. Just if you don't mind him saying, you did a, a good job of uh, remaining neutral during the. Uh, Farewell BBC television show. Oh, thank you. It was quite a... Yeah, I was I was not there to take a point of view. I was there to bring out the best in, in the guests. You yeah. know, and we, we had a fabulous line-up of people. <laughs> um, so you were scouted by a relatively new network in Channel 4 uh, in 1988, I think, where you remained for over a decade. With slightly more youth-orientated content with entertainment shows such as The World and later The Big Breakfast, in what way do you feel a sense of responsibility to echo the changes in society that were taking place? Oh, I think in order for television to be relevant, it has to reflect uh, life as we know it. You're always trying to get the audience to identify with your shows. Uh, And even in comedy, tastes in comedy change over decades and generations. Uh, I don't think Terry and June uh, would work in today's market, <laughs> but that's not to say it wasn't a wonderful show in its time. Um, uh, but what you have to do in television, whether you're at Channel 4 or wherever, uh, is to uh, be relevant to people's lives. Now, at Channel 4, we had a specific uh, remit, we had, and I was trying to reinforce and completely put a stamp on the channel's brand uh, and uh, that was the important thing because you could see competition coming and the important thing in competition is to differentiate yourself from the competition and we worked very hard at uh, what we called it you know is this a channel four show or not you know even if it looked like something that was going to get huge ratings if it didn't fit the brand, our idea of what, what Channel 4 was about, we wouldn't do it. We had to do shows that, that looked 
slightly iconoclastic, slightly different, slightly new. And that, that, was, that was what we strove to do. We had a few flops along the way. Uh, but I think we achieved that. Hmm. Um, then in 2004, you were chosen to steady the ship and return to the BBC following the controversial Hutton inquiry. How difficult was it at that time to repair public trust in such a British institution? Funnily enough, not that difficult. Uh, the, the hard part was settling the staff down. Uh, it was leaderless. The director general had been fired. The chairman had resigned. The place was having a nervous breakdown. So my job was to calm everybody down, get a director general appointed as fast as possible, which I did and appointed with with the board we appointed Mark Thompson and from there everything everything began to settle down but it was it was a nervous moment for the BBC the place was in in, in disarray really. Um, 2011 then you decided to move to the other side of the camera and delve into your into a story you knew well for BBC Four's story of variety what did that teach you about your own entertainment roots? Well uh, I'm a very nostalgic person. I I love, uh, still have a, a a passion for the musical and variety, the days of variety. It's never going to come back. You know, I accept that it's gone forever. It's like, you know, watching Hollywood musicals of the 30s and 40s. You know, they're wonderful. They're still wonderful. You couldn't do it today. It wouldn't really work today. Uh, but I have a huge nostalgia affection for the musical and the culture of the musical and the old acts and so on uh, and uh, it's still with me uh, I, I just I still go onto YouTube I remember an act and I see if see if they're on YouTube and I watch them and uh, nobody else thinks they're funny than I do <laughs> um, you mentioned it earlier on you returned to BBC Television Centre for one final time, accompanied by a whole host of stars, uh, as everyone bid farewell to the Dream Factory, at least in its capacity that it was then. How significant was that moment um, in terms of the BBC and how it looked like at that time anyway they would be moving forward with programme making? Well... There have been such seismic changes in the media industry over the last 20 years, and the BBC has to move with the times. You know, it can't live on its past. And an institution that can't change and move with the times is an institution that's doomed, really. Uh, and they, ha- they have to move on. The, in- the arrival of independent production was a, you know, a huge seismic change for the BBC. Uh, and the fact that there were studios all over the country that where you could make shows, they didn't really need to run studios themselves. So, you know, in the early days, the BBC made their own cameras because there was no one else to make them. Right. Uh, so, uh, but those times have changed, and and the institution very slowly, some would say too slowly, uh, has to change. Yeah. So, last two questions. Questions we ask to everybody. Um, Looking back at your career, what's your proudest achievement? Uh, 
I mean, you've got some bits to pick from, but... <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I think to have been given the privilege of being chairman of the BBC would, would have been something that I would never in a million years, or my family would never have dreamt in a million years, would have been something that was achievable. So in terms of, uh, yeah, in terms of achievement, and recognition that undoubtedly was, was a, yeah. I mean, every job I've had, I've loved and worked hard, but that was a particular honor, really. Yeah, uh, to be trusted to sort the BBC out. Josh just said, if it's okay, he's gonna ask another question in between. Yeah, sure, sure. <sighs> Josh asked, how did it feel being a grade at the BBC? Because that must have been quite a daunting feeling, even holding that name in the uh, opposition's box. (laughs) Um, Yes. Uh, I'm very proud of the family name. We have, you know, a a great reputation for integrity and, and... and fair dealing and so on and so on. And I've always tried to uphold that. Um, going into the BBC, I think I, I got, I was very welcome because I think the staff felt that, that at last there was someone in charge at the, you know, at the top table on the board, the chairman, uh, who understood how television worked, understood their problems and their anxieties and how the whole thing worked. And and I think it was a great relief. And, you know, if they brought in some academic, we'd have to learn how the whole thing, you know, would never have worked. And it was very uh, um, sensible of uh, Tessa Jowell, the late Tessa Jowell, who was Secretary of State at the time, to look for somebody who could calm the place down and who would carry the confidence of the staff. That was the most important thing. So uh, they made my life a lot easier than when I went in as the controller of BBC One years before, because I was regarded as a vulgarian from the Variety Theatre uh, and not an Oxbridge double first who found themselves at the BBC making uh, very esoteric documentaries. So uh, I got a better reception the first, second time around than the first time. Yeah. So last question then. Um, What's next for Lord Grade? Blimey. Survival, I think. <laughs> That's about it, really. Uh, I, I, I'm still working hard. I, I, I enjoy my work in the House of Lords. Uh, I take it very seriously. 
I've got various business interests, uh, and my rule is work with nice people, uh, and uh, that's 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 keeping me going, keeping me young. Yeah. Uh, so uh, no, basically survival. That's keep keep <laughs> the brain working, and uh, keep working. Yes. You know what else can I say? My uncle Lou, God rest his soul, he was still grafting away, age ninety four, ninety five. So. Uh, Hopefully, uh, I can emulate that. Just said you've got a bit of time to go yet, then, if you're going to... Well, I hope so. I hope, I hope you're right, Josh. I hope, I hope you're right. You start another TV channel in that time. Oh, no. No, no, no. no, no, no. Don't slack. <laughs> Don't wish that on me. No. It could be GB News, you know. Oh, yeah. Well. Okay, brilliant. Well, thanks very much. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.